As you may know, I have my sort of desert island drama moments, and one of them took place nearly, God, 40 years ago in the Assembly Hall at the Edinburgh Festival of 1972, which is normally used for the, the uh, Church of Scotland getting together once a year, the sort of national, the General Assembly of the Kirk. Well, this was transformed into Tamburlaine's Imperial Palace. This is the production of Marlowe's great play, which I wish somebody would do again, actually. If, I, if anybody's out there, please do a Tamburlaine the Great for me. And this was terribly exciting. And there was a, I remember the chariot was a sort of dominated the uh, hall with various skeletons on either side of the chariot. Um, and I remember vividly, it was my first sighting of Ian McDermott, as the Sultan Bajazeh, who was unfortunate enough to tangle with Tamburlaine and was put into a cage which dangled above the assembly hall, uh, including my friend here, and he beat his brains out on the walls or the bars of the cage. It was the most exciting, dramatic, wonderful, uh, exhilarating yep. production. Eight times a week. <laughs> <laughs> Fast forward about six years, and I was gurgling along to uh, The Return of the Jedi, I think it must have been, and there was this hooded, sinister figure, and I kind of looked into the, on the screen, and I thought, I know that face from somewhere. And sure enough, again, it was Mr. <laughs> Ian McDermott. Now, Ian has only worked once at the National before. That was playing Brecht in Tales from Hollywood, Christopher Hampton's play. That was a very long time ago. And the reason he hasn't been asked back till now, I take it, is, of course, that he and Jonathan Kent took over the Almeida Theatre for and ran it for about 12 years and made what was a relatively, you know, <laughs> obscure venue into a theatrical hothouse internationally speaking. And if you've ever wanted to see Emperor and Galilean, Ibsen's relatively obscure play, you've got one chance left to see it tonight in which Ian plays Maximus. But he comes to us hot foot from the Royal Court where he's rehearsing a new play called The Faith Machine mm -hmm. by Alexei K. Campbell, in which, interestingly, Ian, you're playing a man of the cloth, yeah. whereas an Emperor and Galilean, you're playing Maximus as anything but. So That's right. do you feel even more than usually schizophrenic doing this in two parts, more or less at once? I suppose so. It's been too busy. I haven't really had time to think about it. But it's true, Maximus is a pagan. And um, Edward, he's called in the faith machine, um, is a, a bishop who's left the church rather angrily uh, because they're not liberal enough. So it's a contrast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, do you remember much about those productions of Tamerlane? You were, you were, it's in repertoire with Twelfth Night. You gave your that's right. Toby in Twelfth Night. That's, that's when uh, I was at the Glasgow Citizens mm. uh, with a lot of quite well-known people. Um, who subsequently became well known. They weren't then, and one of them was Jonathan Kent. Exactly, yes, which is where we met. Yeah. And he actually, um, he always reminds me of this, played my son in that production <laughs> <laughs> as, as, uh, as Calipine. Um, but it was, uh, it was a production by Keith Hack. It was a very adventurous. Mm. Everyone thought he was German, but he wasn't. He was entirely English. But his, his approach to theatre you might describe mm. as Germanic. Um, he was a follower of Brecht and had strong conceptual notions of, of how to do plays. But th this was a particularly interesting one. We were a troupe of actors performing this play. And as you came into the foyer of uh, the assembly hall, you were sort of regaled by us in fantastic Elizabethan costume, white faces, traditional white faces at the set, doing various mimes. And I remember there was a man who happened to be American who came up knowing that I couldn't answer back because I was, uh, I think I was, I was selling Jeff Cassoon, who was one of the Tamburlaines. There were three Tamburlaines. There was Rupert Fraser, Jeff Cassoon, and Mike Gwillem. And Jeff was the middle one. And as I'm sure you know, Jeff is black. Um, so in order to get controversially straight away, I was sort of selling him as a black slave with his, of course, you know, complete agreement and, and willingness. <laughs> well, this American was sort of outraged by this and came up and said to me, my God, you're a pretentious bastard, <laughs> knowing that I, I couldn't answer. But I do remember, because I had to make my entrance in the second half after the audience was in, and he was, he was just coming in as, uh, as I was sort of standing in the wings, hidden. And I popped out of the wings very briefly to say, you're late. 
So I was feeling, you know, it was Crystal Marlowe. I was feeling vengeful and everything else, but I sort of... Uh, and then he, the, he waited until I got on stage, and then he walked out. So I swear, he had the last non-word, really. So that's my... And I hadn't really thought about it until you... So, well, about yes, that. you've never seen them again, then. Never no, no, I haven't, no, no. Maybe he'd seen me. But it was interesting, as, as Jonathan so kindly pointed out, he was playing your son, and yeah. you were playing Sir Toby Belch in your early 20s, really. That's right, yes, and he was also in that. Yeah, you're right. Yes. Have you always, uh, in a way, played older than you are? Do you know I have? Um, and <laughs> amazingly enough, I always seem to be the oldest actor in the room, but I, I think I've been that since I was 18. <laughs> um, and currently, um, Maximus is older than me. Jonathan Kent told me there's no evidence in the Ibsen. And um, Edward in Face Machine is definitely older than me because it says in his 70s. Uh, so I obviously spend about three hours in makeup um, before, I, before I go on. But it's, it's always strangely seemed that way. I've never really played enemy. Oh, yes, younger than me, Pierre Gint once. I had the first Pierre I played him when I was, as it were, middle-aged. So I was settled in middle-aged, once again old for the old Pierre. And I had to convince the audience I was a bit younger than I was. Probably failed. The thing about when you're playing young, um, you tend to overcompensate by running around a lot and look <laughs> intensely athletic and all that. So, where actually you should stand still more, and then to give the audience a chance to maybe believe that by looking at your face and listening to you, you're younger than you appear. But it is true. Well, I suppose you also because you went to you, you took a degree in uh, psychiatry, did you not? Yeah. Before you went into the business. Mm -hmm. Was this because you, your family didn't want you to go into such an uncertain profession as acting? You thought you would get a degree and just in case... It was exactly that, yes. No, my father said, as far as acting was concerned, you can do all that rubbish in your spare time. Mm -hmm. you know, so I was greatly encouraged. <laughs> uh, but I was lucky enough to get the appropriate hires, you know, A-levels, but hires in Scotland. And I just sort of drifted with my pals to university. Um, it was easier then. Uh, and there was a grant, of course. Um, and I found myself doing social science. The notion was that I'd specialize in clinical psychology eventually, because one of my really good friends was doing that. And I just sort of drifted along, kind of mindlessly. And then I got to the third year, scraped a degree, and I thought, well, I, sh I shouldn't go on like this. I should just try and do not so much what I really want to do, but what I think I am, which is an actor. I've always felt from a very young age that I was the thing that I now do. And that if I didn't try to do it in some way, uh, I'd be denying a part of myself. So I took a deep breath and uh, then I had to go about earning some money because I'd had my grant mm. to pay to go to drama school. And I was taken by the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama. And they were very generous to me. And when I couldn't pay the fees, they found various ways of waiving them. Or if there was any bursary going, I'd get one, not because I was better than anybody else, but because I really needed the money. And I did a job for uh, two evenings a week. Mm. But that must have been pretty hard to put yourself in effect through, through drama school. It's a tough enough time. Yes, but it was great because at last I was doing what I wanted mm. to do and I was with people who wanted to do the same thing as I did. So it was a huge release. And what was your father's reaction then? That you, that well, I got the degree, yes. you know, so, so I could, could fall back on it, uh, you know, <laughs> to use that well-worn expression. Yes. Uh, not that I was ever going to. Should I fall on hard times? So then he just thought, all right, well, it's up to him. You've never had to do a bit of sort of on-the-side psychiatry. No, you can't really do psychiatry. No, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed. Maybe you can, actually. Maybe I can't believe I'm going to ignore your career opportunity. But while well, I watched my, my very good friend who's now, who was in that same uh, class with me, and he is now chair of clinical psychiatry at Aberdeen University and runs the trauma unit there. In fact, set it up uh, as a result of the Piper Alpha disaster. So I, and you know, he, that's in his blood, just as I sort of think acting is in mine. But I watch his career, and I also think, well, I would never have been able to do what, what he's done. But it's interesting to see what I suppose might have, might have happened. One reason I didn't think I'd be any good at being a clinical psychologist, although he would disagree with this, is that I would be too subjective. I would get too emotionally involved in what you have to do if you're playing a part with a person that's opposite you. I thought I would sort of fail the objectivity test. But he assures me that a, a degree of subjectivity is important because um, a, a, a clinically dead clinical psychologist isn't of any use to a patient who, who really wants to be engaged with. 
Isn't it also quite handy when it comes to analysing characters? Well, I suppose I never really got to the interesting stuff. I mean, I, I, I didn't stay on for honours wisely, as the <coughs> professor in charge pointed out when I told him I was going to leave. So it was all rats and mazes and pigeons oh, and salivating dogs <laughs> and ergonomics, like, you know, a chair, you know, yes. a comfortable chair. So the, the, the interesting stuff would have come right. later. But of course, I, like most people, read a bit of Freud and mm -hmm. so on. And uh, I, I've always been um, sort of interested in, in, if you're an actor, you just instinctively are in, in human psychology. So, and it's, and we just can't stop watching people, I think. Mm. Now, from the Glasgow sits, and I kind of paraphrase, I suppose, or I'm sure other things happen, but the next phase of your career would be with the Royal Shakespeare Company, which you were with for five or on and off a yes. fair amount of time. It sort of was. There was, a, there was a period before that when I worked at the Open Space, which is a theatre in Tottenham Court Road run by Charles Maravitz. Oh. And when we were there, there was um, a play by Arabal called And They Handcuffed the Flowers. Sounds better in Spanish and in French. <laughs> but that's what it was called. And I got to meet... Arabal himself was supposed to come over and direct it, but he didn't, and he sent his... Uh, trusted assistant, a lieutenant called Patrika Ionesco, Romanian, uh, and he couldn't speak any English. And you might think this was a handicap, but in a strange way it wasn't, because he talked to us, he was an actor too, physically the whole time. So without starting going out and learning various techniques, um, we sort of learned much more physical expression than perhaps they would have done in other contexts. And Patrika then got a job working for TNP in Paris. And he asked Tony Milner, Anthony Milner, who was in the company, and myself, to go out and join him. Um, we didn't have to speak a great deal of French, because, again, we were doing the kind of work that we'd done with him in the Arabal. Two plays, one, Arthur's The Chenchi, uh, and the other play called Tabarin, which was about the man who taught Molière all he knew. Neither was performed, because President Pompidou died Jack Lang, later Minister of Culture, was running the theatre, and they suddenly panicked because they'd been overspending, or spending a lot anyway, for years, and budgets were slashed, you know, that old phrase. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly they were asked to do, Patrick was asked to do the production in a small space because he'd been going to do it thrillingly in the sort of abandoned theatre that was the Palais de Chaillot. It was being renovated, mm -hmm. so all the seats had come out, and it was just this vast, fantastic sort of auditorium and stage. And his notion was that the audience should be caged <laughs> and that the actor should roam free. Yeah, Arthur would certainly have liked that. But unfortunately, we didn't get to do it because when they said, would you mind doing it in the studio, he stalked out in high dudgeon and we just followed him inevitably. And then the RSC. Right. Now, lots to talk about there, but I suppose that Trevor Nunn's Scottish play is one that I remember, Judy and um, Sir yeah. Ian. Yeah. Uh, were you, did you, which you played the porter and Ross. Ross. Were you, did you feel that you were in the sort of presence of greatness with that production from the start? Not from the start, no. It was a very, very hot summer at Stratford, one of the, one of the hottest ever. 76, it must have Yeah, been. it was. Um, and I'm sure some of you here know what the other place was like, but it was that tin hut. So it was sort of stifling. Um, Judy wasn't terribly keen to play Lady Macbeth, but um, she said she would only do it in a small space. She didn't feel that she could make the woman that she could bring to Lady Macbeth convincing in that big theatre. Um, Trevor was, was very much interested in directing for the first time in a small theatre, having watched Buzz Goodbody's production of Hamlet. Um, so he was rather excited about the whole notion. Ian, I think, probably would have preferred to play it in the main theatre. And he'd already, he was fairly tired, he'd done Romeo, and he'd done the aunties, sort of back to back, and he was performing as we were rehearsing. And uh, we started rehearsals. Um, the set was going to be very simple. I mean, those of you who saw it or have seen it on television, that was a set that John Napier designed uh, was a set we ended up with. But, but Trevor being Trevor, lots of large props arrived, not least the banquet table. <laughs> banquet table coming through the doors, bang, crash, and everything else. And Roger East, who played Malcolm, said, we're not going to have that, are we, Trevor? And I said, Roger, it's a banquet. You have to have a banquet table. <laughs> uh, and uh, Roger said, well, do you really? And a few of the rest of us in the company who'd been used to, well, me at the open space, poorish theatre, said, it's, a, you know, it's amazing what you can do without anything. And you've got these orange boxes where we're all sitting around. 
Um, he said, well, perhaps they should be in the form of a table. And then we said, well, let's just try it sitting where we are and see what happened. So we did, and it seemed magical to Trevor and indeed to Ian that you could do away with something as apparently uh, necessary as, as a large table. And then things started to change. But when we opened, everyone was very nervous, and Peggy Ashcroft came to an early preview and was helpful, but said, terrifyingly, is the worst thing you would say to an actor, I didn't hear it all, you know, and we were in the other place, so probably we were just chewing it a bit, I don't know, or too quiet, not enough energy. So there was a sort of nervous atmosphere about it. But then as previews went on, I remember Tom Stoppard and Nigel Hawthorne separately came to previews, and they came round clearly moved, uh, you know, not just being polite and friendly as they would certainly be, but clearly really moved. So then we thought, and also we'd had the audience silence, we felt we might be on to something. And then we opened and it was hanged. Mm. I think it's a production that, above all, had that sort of almost tangible sense of evil. Yes. Of uh, black magic, of the supernatural mm. that I've ever, ever seen in that particular play. And great to do it in a very confined space. We're used to confined spaces mm. now, this is sort of one. But the other place was much, and it, the fact it was a tin hut and the door shut with a bang and nobody was getting out till the end. Mm -hmm. And the lighting was fairly minimal, I remember the swinging light in the roof that went round and round at one point. So you did feel you were absolutely in touch with, with what was going on. It was almost like taking by an assailant, something like that. Yeah, I think that, yes. Had so that think, sort of... Trevor had that in mind, I think. Mm. Or he did as rehearsals went mm -hmm. on, you know. Did. Often that happened, you know, just... And I, he had, that's a play that he'd, worried over and directed a number of times and felt and it's hard god knows it's hard felt he he hadn't really got near to it and so he was it was in his blood and and, and uh, eventually with that production uh, he um he let it out and made it made it work in a way that it had never worked before i think and as you say the last person to thought to have played lady m so brilliantly would be yeah. somebody like judy who yeah. exudes a sort of grace and yes love yes. in an audience, yes. she? Yes, yes. And, and oddly enough, she, of course, she managed to exude those qualities for Macbeth yes. in, in, in yes. a wonderful portrayal. She'd also taken it to Africa years ago with John Neville, where, uh, where everyone had greeted with gales of laughter, which wasn't because they thought they were ridiculous, they were just being friendly. <laughs> that I think probably that stuck in Judy's mind. You know, probably, she would think it was her or something like that. That was a production where somebody, one of the, she was playing one. Well, I suppose one of the witches had to drop out and was taken. You know the story, taken over by a lady from the British Council, rather <laughs> improvised during the Eye of Newton. I can't even. I shouldn't no, please, be saying it. Please, London. Uh, exactly. Yes, <laughs> and started to saying half a sausage, three onions, and an apple. Something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. I get the feeling... I think Mary King did that one night. No, she didn't. Yeah. <laughs> she <laughs> had the one. I can't quote it, can I? No. no. Well, I don't know. Okay, I'd love not. to tell you the Mary King story. All right. <laughs> now, I get the impression, because I seem to remember in those early Star Wars films that a lot of the cast seemed to be straight from the Royal Shakespeare Company, as if the casting lady had just appeared at Stratford one day and signed you all up. Quite a lot. Well, she was very, she was very astute, Mary Selwyn. Oh, Mary Selwyn. Yes, yes, it was earlier films. And, uh, yeah, I keep forgetting who's in it. I saw Celia Imrie the other day, and, of course, she's a stormtrooper. And she just reminded me. God, yes. Um, Michael Pennington? Yeah, well, Mike, yes. Well, the first, I, I, you never know anything. It hasn't, hadn't changed until over now. Because um, they don't like to give any information away for good reasons. Mm. Because now, of course, I can't imagine working on a film like that information so readily available to, to everybody, how they'd be able to keep it dark. But nobody was really told anything. I didn't know what part I was playing until after I'd been offered it. And, uh, and then I didn't even know what the character was, and I only really realized what he looked like when I went in for the four-hour makeup test. <laughs> and then on the first day, and it was a scene with Michael Pennington, I didn't know he was in it, uh, and I was in makeup forever, and everybody else was in the studio doing the first scene. And I was led in because I had these yellow contact lenses out of which I could see very little, just straight ahead directional vision. And I was led up to the top of this platform, Dave Tomlin, Marvel's first director. Uh, so we're just going to do a rehearsal, Ian's going to find. Um, and he said, so um, you know the lines, don't you? They always say that nervously. I said, yes, I think so, I hope so. Uh, I said, oh, by the way, of course, that Dave Prowse will be saying them, but you won't hear him because he's inside that helmet. And you know anyway, later on, it's James L. Jones. So, so I thought, well, I'll just 
I'll have to gas for to speak to him, will I? <laughs> so eat more or less, don't worry about it, you know. Um, so then I stood by for the rehearsal, smoke everywhere. These doors flew apart, and I could just see that I was at the top of this huge staircase, and there were what looked like about 2,000 stormtroopers, and it, probably not as many as that, but in those days they were all there, they had to be there, you couldn't paint them on, unlike now. And I walked down to the, the, the bottom of the step, taking care not to fall over my voluminous gown and all the rest of it. And found at the bottom that Michael Pennington was there to greet me. <laughs> and he didn't recognize me until I opened my mouth. And I didn't recognize him until he opened his. And, uh, and he was thinking, God almighty, it's Ian McDowell. <laughs> Michael. And, but of course, we were very serious. We went through rehearsal, you know. And, uh, and then we both, in unison, when the word uh, cut went out, we went, Christ, it's you. What are you doing? <laughs> so it was, it was always a bit like that, really. But no, never less than fun. So even in those, where did George Lucas tell you that he would be doing the first three films yes. at some future date in which you would probably feature or...? Well, he didn't, he didn't know that he would do... Um, I mean, he conceived the whole thing as one movie, perhaps two, when he wrote mm. it. Um, and then the first one was an enormous success against, you know, uh, everyone's... Uh, advice or feeling, 20th Century Fox thought they had the biggest turkey ever on their hand. Subsequently regretted that, because they sort of, they, apparently they didn't give George Lucas his full fee, uh, because they were unhappy with it. And he, not really knowing entirely what it meant, although he's very shrewd, uh, said could he have, another word be the franchise, in other words, you know, any, any spin-offs, mm -hmm. we all know what that means now. And I think 20th Century Fox thought, how sweet, he wants to print a couple of t-shirts. <laughs> so, yeah, sure, you know. So, you know, they, and they've lived in a state of deep fury and regret ever since. They haven't because managements have changed and now they get on terribly well and all the rest of it. But uh, those, were, those were the days. What was your question? Well, I was going to say, did George Lucas sort of promise you that you would be playing your character your character oh, yeah. younger uh, man? No, he didn't. Because, again, he didn't know that he was going to make the story of uh, Darth Vader. And it was because Vader was such a, a popular character and it meant, you know, so much to so many children of all ages that he thought it would be a good idea. And, um, and luckily, because I was, here we go again, I was in my 30s when I played this 110-year-old or whatever, <laughs> whatever it was. I was actually uh, certainly available, but I was perhaps suitable to play uh, the part chronologically, uh, which it was now going to be told in because Palpatine, the senator, who later becomes emperor, for those of you who don't know, um, he's about 50. So I was pretty close to mm -hmm. that age uh, when we did the first prequel. But I didn't know, and he could easily have found someone else or found a different way into the story and all the rest of it. But we had the same kind of second meeting as the first, which was very brief. Um, the second meeting was, it, it was in a hotel, the other one was at, uh, down at the studios in was it Pinewood or Earl Street, whichever, whichever it was. Because I was a last minute choice initially, uh, there was an actor already engaged to play the opera who was nearer the age than I was then, certainly. But he was uninsurable because he couldn't take the contact lenses fitting. And Mary Selway had seen me in a production upstairs at the Royal Court of a play by Sam Shepard called Seduced, in which I was playing the sort of aging Howard Hughes with the hair and the toenails and all the rest of it. And I guess, although we never talked about it, Mary had said something like, I know this guy who's in his 30s but could probably be convincing old in close-up. Anyway, why don't you meet him? And we had this very brief meeting over lunch with Richard Marquand, the director of Return of the Jedi. And, uh, and when I went back home, the phone was ringing in my agent saying, you've got the part. And I said, what part? And he said, oh, hang on a minute. He's called the Emperor of the Universe. <laughs> I guess I'll be doing it then. And that's, how, that's absolutely how it happened. And then the second time round, knowing George a bit from the turn of the Jedi, but I hadn't really seen him since, um, walked into the room, you know, what would you like to drink? Oh, I'll, I'll have a water, please. Uh, and he said, now, do you know anybody who wants to play the Emperor? And I said, well, funny you should say that. He said, okay, give him back the water. <laughs> and that was it. Mm -hmm. and, and then he told me not much, but a little about how the character would develop over the three films. And uh, off we went. And has it changed your life being associated with those films? Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, it's made me more financially comfortable, um, certainly. Um, 
and of course, you know, they were the they are the first great franchise, and uh, I keep expecting them to blow over, really, but they sort of don't. They they follow you around um, everywhere, which is uh, by and large pretty nice. Now and again, it's it's less nice, um, but it was a it was a great thing to do, and I still can't quite believe I. I I did it. And all sorts of marvelous, surreal th moments have happened. Uh, Ewan, who I knew quite well before we started making the film, Ewan, Ewan McGregor, he went, Christian, you were on my duvet <laughs> as the emperor when he was just a kid because he's so much younger than me. <laughs> Things like that sort of come up, you know, and I said, you know, now it is, of course, and now, of course, I've said that. It's all over Twitter and all the other things. And, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's true. But he couldn't quite believe, of course, that he was Alec Guinness. You know, because he <laughs> suddenly woke up this boy, and he was, he, was, he was the young Alec. So it's always been full, for all of us have been involved in that, uh, full of these sort of, we could not believe we would ever be kind of, kind of feelings. Um, but it was, uh, it was great to be in, well, four of them, and then now five, really, of, of I suppose, mm. the, the first big, Blockbuster. And didn't, didn't George Lucas cough up something for the roof of the Almeida or yeah, something? Yeah, he was great. He was very good. And uh, he was very supportive of, of, of the Almeida, what we did, and approved of it and thought it was, well, he didn't say so, but I, I guess he thought it was kind of like him, that he just, something had happened to him and, and it didn't really happen within the system. The system really wasn't accommodating in some mm. way. Nobody was against us, but there was no money. You know, we turned this place that Pierre Audi had run very successfully, but as a, as a receiving house and a music festival into a full-time producing theatre doing lots of plays, and on paper it looked impossible. So I think he quite admired that achievement, and he liked the theatre and thought it was good. And uh, so when The Phantom Menace was going to be released, um, his head of marketing, a very nice woman, said to me, I, I think George will do some sort of benefit for you, if you ask him. So I did. and. Um, he said, well, I'll, I'll give you uh, an official preview that will open before the, the premiere in this country, which was fantastic. So we sold all our seats at a very high price at the, not the big Odeon, the smaller Odeon, that's still 800 seats uh, in Leicester Square. And then 20th Century Fox, to misunderstand, decided that they would do midnight previews in advance. So I phoned up, so it's going to be really embarrassing because I promised all these people, you know, that it will be the exclusive show that they'll see before really anyone else does in this country. And um, he said, well, uh, if it's a problem, I'll tell Fox to cancel. Uh, but here's another suggestion. I'll come along and do the only interview, because he wasn't going to do any interviews for that film, with you, and you can play Al Center. <laughs> and, uh, and then immediately after, we'll show the film, see if that works. So we phoned everybody up, and they got very excited about that, and it wasn't a problem. And we made £100,000 and uh, fixed the roof. Fantastic. But what, I mean, what inspired you and Jonathan to think that you could run, you, there you were, to actors, successful actors. What, how did the idea first occur to you? Well, it didn't really occur. It was, it was Pierre Audi, the, the founder of the theatre, one of the founders of the theatre, and its first artistic director's notion that we should apply. And he, where he still is, very successfully, uh, in, he runs Dutch Opera in, in Amsterdam, and he'd been offered that job and wanted to do it. I think for a while he thought he might be able to manage both, and then thought, no, that's mad, I can't, I'll have to give up his baby, really, the Almeida. And I'd worked there off and on, did a season of extra work with the RSC and so on. And he said, well, I'd, I'd love to think of you being continued to be associated with the theatre in some way. Would you like to join the board? And I thought, oh, God, no, I don't want to join the board. And then he said, well, maybe you think about applying to my job. And I, you know, my jaw dropped and looked at him incredulously. I said, well, I don't have any qualifications for that. He said, you've got more qualifications than a, a number of people who might apply. And I didn't really take it seriously. And then I ran into him again. And he said, have you thought any more about that suggestion? And I thought, well, we should, because um, I knew that I, the only way it would work if John and Kent and I did it together. Um, so I thought, well, if we don't apply, uh, that would be silly. And if we apply and get it and decide not to do it, that, that'll be rather like all those years ago, you know, when I rather nervously went to university because I didn't have the courage to be an actor. So I knew I had to go for it. We had to go for it. 
And it would only make sense to us if we managed to turn the theatre into a full-time producing house. Doing what? Well, new plays and old ones. Preferably the old ones that hadn't been seen that often, uh, with people who'd, who'd give them a, a, a fresh look. And as many new plays as we could get hold of. So that was simply our policy. And uh, there, was, there was probably enough money in terms of indirect Arts Council support that came from the London Arts Board, which is called something different then. Um, for say one and a half productions, and that one production would have to have no more than five people in it. So it looked mad, and in a sense it sort of was mad. And we thought how we should go about it uh, in applying for the job was to, we might as well think of our ideal situation. So we chose two new plays and two old ones, and we approached various people and said, if we do get this job and we manage to pull this off, would you be in those plays? You know, the conditional situation. Fortunately, the first person we approached was Glenda Jackson. Mm -hmm. And she had done scenes from an execution by Howard Barker on the radio. And there'd been talk of her doing it at the West End and it'd fallen through. So I thought she might be interested and I did have her number. So I phoned up and said, you know, we, we're going to apply for this job. We might not get it. Uh, when would it be? She immediately said, well, okay, assuming we got it, it would be in about um, 18 months' time. She said, oh, that could work. <laughs> and uh, thinking of her schedule. And I said, well, if we did get the job, it would be the first production. It would be fantastic. And if you could put up with me as a director. We'd already talked about it informally before. Um, we'd love to do that. And she said, all right, you're on. And she said, if it helps to say I'm in it to anybody, fundraising or whatever, say it. Um, of course it did. And we did. And I, I mean, because she's an honorable woman, I knew she'd turn up, but I couldn't really believe it. You know, nobody else believed it. What's she doing in Islington? People would go, <laughs> on hard times is she? She won't be coming to that. All that sort of stuff would go on, you know. I said, well, no, she's coming, she's absolutely coming. Um, and then we sort of went on in that vein. Um, the other new play we wanted to do was a play by David Ladd called Desire, which is set in Zimbabwe, um, just after the period of white supremacy, when um, it looks as if everything's going to be just great, because the Africans now have a say in their lives, little did we know, etc., etc. But it basically was a play about what happens after the revolution. Now you've got it, what do you do next? The question nobody ever asked in advance, like Iraq, you know, okay, why don't you smash them to pieces? How does the rebuilding plan work? So fascinating from that point of view. Uh, and the two classics were a play that's never done, I think probably hasn't been done since, though various people are thinking about maybe doing it again one day, When We Dead, Wake and Catchy Title, uh, by Ibsen. Scenes from an execution followed by When We Dead, Wake <laughs> Artistic suicide, in a nutshell. And then Volponi, uh, which I asked Nick Heiner, God bless him, uh, to direct, and he'd already mooted that he would be interested in doing it at the Royal Exchange with me and uh, with Gary Oldman, because we'd worked together on another play there, The Country Wife. Um, so it looked as if we'd sort of have a, an attractive season. And the David's play, Desire, again, we said to him, OK, ideal world situation, who would you like to direct it? And he said, there's this Romanian guy, I can't remember his name. I saw his work at La Mama in New York. This was Andre Serban. So we got in touch with him. People go, you're mad. Uh, we got hold of his lawyer, and um, first of all, there was a bit of stonewalling, and then said, well, send the play. Well, he read it, liked it, because it was also about the situation in Romania, in a, in a, a way you can work out, given what I said before. And no one had ever asked him to direct a play in this country, so he said, I'll come and do it. I know you haven't got any money. Maybe somebody can pay for the airfare and all. Uh, that's the way people, most people talk, and, well, you know, could you find somewhere for me to live? And, and then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we, won't, we won't worry about the money because we know it's going to be terrible. Um, so there was a sort of season, and Claire Bloom had also agreed um, to be in When We Dead Waken. Um, we didn't, we tried through her agent at the time, and they were very stonewalling, and then somebody knew Philip Roth's address, and she was living with Philip Roth at the time, so we got the play to her over there. Philip Roth phoned up, said, so sorry, Claire, can't talk to you herself, she's on the road in the show, uh, but this is a thrilling prospect, it's a part she's always wanted to do. 
there you go. And so we sort of went in for our, uh, our interview with these things. I think they thought we were mad. I thought they'll think we're complete fantasists. Anyway, then, you know, they listened politely, got excited or disbelieving or whatever their appropriate attitude was. And they said, well, how are you possibly going to afford this? And we said, well, we don't know. But what we'll do is print a brochure. Uh, these people will come and we'll say, help us do those plays. And that's, long story short, what happened. And so you and Jonathan seem to discover your métier, really, running a building, directing productions to an incredibly high standard, and also attracting, you know, all those sorts of people. Yeah, just by asking them, really. Yes. Uh, and lots of people, I mean, I, and it's, you know, it seems to probably say, well, how on earth did you get them? You know, but we just, we did just ask them. Some we knew, or we knew, I've just told you the stories, you know, how it happened. And by and large, people thought it was an interesting thing to do. And they were also, they loved the space. Those who didn't know it came and saw it and were just immediately attracted by it and by its possibilities. So it, it had its own pull in a way. And, uh, and also, we were, we were struggling to do something that most theatre artists thought was important, you know, the kind, of, the kind of work that actually in other areas they weren't being offered in some cases or that they thought should be done, or they really wanted to do. And also, to be frank, the time scale fitted. Mm. You know, a short rehearsal period, a straight run, and then back to films, if that's what they were doing, or, or, or something else, or into the Houses of Parliament. Um, <laughs> subsequently, subsequently, Glenda did. So there was, you know, looking at it now, retrospectively, pragmatically, in some ways, it was, it was really quite good and quite convenient. But it was always hair-raising, financially always hair-raising. There were weeks when we didn't know how we were going to pay the wages. And we had to uh, ask all sorts of people to help. But we knew that, I mean, all we could do was fail. Um, and we, we thought, well, we might. You know, off, quite often we thought, this is it. But we knew we had to have a go. Mm. And I suppose we would have just gone back to being actors uh, if anyone wanted to employ us had it fallen apart, so it wouldn't have been the end of the world. But of course we got so determined, and we convinced a lot of other people by then, uh, that, that we weren't going to fail, that we didn't. Mm. And we kept meeting, people would introduce us to useful people. Like we met the head of corporate giving at Morgan in New York, wonderful woman called Jean Linnis, who was coming over to London to be with her husband because he was suddenly found he was working here. And she hadn't planned to take another job, she was looking after her kids for a while. So we sought her out and asked her advice about how to fundraise. And she's great, Jean. And um, again, we sort of, you know, we thought, well, we'll give her a nice evening. I was in the Black Prince in the West End. Uh, I said, well, let's invite her to the play, take her, you know, come backstage, uh, come to dinner next door, and so on. And uh, she was excited by that and excited by the venture and said, well, I can tell you now what you should be doing. <laughs> Love Americans. Um, and here, you know, for a start, there's AT&T, who were very big then and are becoming big again after their sort of lapse. And they funded the kind of work in America, we didn't know this, that we wanted to do here. She said, you're a perfect fit. They're looking to move into Europe. I'll call so-and-so and arrange a meeting. So she did. And they, this is what was, uh, like Glenda coming, but on the other side, the corporate side of things, AT&T gave us 25,000 um, pounds for an early production, All for Love, I think it was. And uh, so then we were able to go to other sponsors and we were taken seriously because AT&T took us seriously. AT&T, how did you get that? all that? You know, one thing leads to another. People had also said to us, God, people are difficult at times, aren't they? That nobody will want to come to the Almeida sponsors. You know, corporate people won't want to come because you can't entertain them properly. In other words, you can't give them boxes and champagne at the interval and all the rest of it. Said, so, no, we could give them champagne at the interval if that's what they want. But we can, we can only give them our bar. They might like that. Well, of course, they loved it. Um, and, uh, and they got to meet the actors. And we didn't have to say, although all actors do, come and say hello to the sponsors. Just, are you having a drink in the bar tonight? Well, I might just bring somebody over to say hello. So that's how it happened. And, and because the space was so small, they were very excited to be in the auditorium so close to people that they'd seen on screen or in distance and larger stages. And so these kind of things, the kind of things we were trying to do to connect more of the actors with the people, also happened in corporate terms. And it was a time when it was highly unfashionable to do so. A lot of people accused us of being Thatcherites, and you can call us what you like, but uh, we're trying to keep this theatre alive. And uh, these people want to give us money, and they don't want much in return. They just want the sort of things I've described. And every now and again, they would give us a benefit, by which I mean um, 
pay for an evening that we would organize that they could invite their clients to and lots of other people. And uh, they would take tables and charge large amounts and we would get all of the money. So we became, in a strange way, part of that culture, although it wasn't a culture then. It was in the opera world, in the dance world, but not in the theater now, of course, it is. Yes, I mean, press nights at the Almeida were always incredibly glamorous, very sort of sleek, look wealthy, prosperous. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, they got to come to press yes. night when they always wanted to. And, and we used to invite lots of actors. Mm. If you were in, uh, Michael does this at the Dharma too, if you were in the last production, you got invited to the next yes, one. You know, yes. that was just... And uh, I mean, I used to dread playing them. I still do. First nights are a nightmare, you know, because <laughs> you you have to face the notion that you're going to be judged. Get on with it. Be judged. You know, and get on to the next night. Is what we. But then there are all the other, these other people who do not, in a sense, make an ideal audience. Mm. You know, very hard to get hold of and to do anything with. But um, as Harold Pinter say, well, it's one nightmare night of the life of, of your life. You know. Get on with it. So, so, so we we did encouraged by things like that. Indeed, encouraged by encouraged by people like Harold Pinter. But you eventually stepped down. I mean, Jonathan is now an international director, yep. getting all over the world. Yeah. You've returned to acting and never gone away from it. But I mean, yeah, well. exactly. right, acting but not running. Do yep. you miss having a base? Do you miss going back to being the kind of you know footloose and fancy free actor waiting for the next job offer? Uh, no, although I, I've always said no to that question because we did it for 13 years and it was you know, time to go and time to do different things. Jonathan wasn't a director at all when he started the Almeida. His first production was When We Dead Wake Him. And he always says to aspiring directors who ask him for advice, he said, don't ever choose When We Dead Wake Him. <laughs> although he did a very good job with it, actually. It was good. Um, and discovered that he was a director without really knowing that he was or even knowing that he wanted to be. And I directed a bit, but never really felt I was a director either. I felt I should do it. You run a theater and all the rest of it. Not that I didn't enjoy it. I loved working with the actors, designers, and everything else. But I always found that when an audience came at the previews, I wasn't much of a help, because I just sort of joined them. And I, I found myself being pleased that the actors had actually turned up. You know, they <laughs> and they were making people laugh. They looked great in the costumes. So I became sort of useless. I'd go backstage and say complimentary things. And they go, well, that's very nice. But what did you really think? You remember that bit when I did? And I thought, God, I wasn't paying attention to that. <laughs> so I thought, no, I'm not a real director. Whereas Jonathan absolutely was, is. Um, but that was a kind of relief, because I thought, well, I didn't have to do it then. He can direct. I can go on and act as I want to do and run the, run the theater with him. Um, but then, although he'd done productions here while he was at the, at the Almeida, he did Mother Courage. And in this room, he did, what did he do? Was it Le Seed? Le Seed, Cornet's Le Seed, yeah. So he'd ventured outside, but you know, there wasn't many, there were uh, opportunities offered him, but he was, you know, committed to the Almeida, so it wasn't going to take many. And then when it stopped, he was able to, to do lots of things. Uh, but he continues to do lots of things, mm -hmm. which is which is great. But what I, th we also felt, we, we were tired. He was more tired than me, because in the last year he'd done practically every production. These were huge productions, Platonov, Platonov, things like that, uh, which had really Lulu, taken the energy out of it. And also we were doing it in this new building, I mean, old building, old bus station, station in King's Cross, King's Cross, which is a marvelous space, but resisted us, unlike Gainsborough Studios, where we were for our previous excursion out of the Almeida. Uh, it was, a, it was a, a theater that really wanted still to be a bus station. <laughs> but, but we fought it and we won, and we turned it into two theaters. Um, and it ended up being the most wonderful space. I don't know if any of you came, but there was, yeah. a, there was a gigantic bar that you went into. And lots of people would pass by, and they'd just come in for a drink, and they go, what's this? We go, it's a gigantic bar, but there are a couple of theatres running the theatre. <laughs> and, uh, and all the, again, we were told, as we were told, we went to Hackney, nobody will come, they'll all be terrified, you know, they'll be uh, approached by prostitutes and assaulted by muggers. And, you know, I say, well, they, you know, that's the history of the theatre, certainly Elizabethan theatre, you know. Maybe we should be returning to it, I'd say helpful things like that. Keep your voice down here, there's a sponsor over there. Um, but that was a marvellous space, and if we'd had, we were sort of kicked out of it in the end. We knew we couldn't be there for too long, but uh, I won't go into the details, but the, the people who owned the building made it really difficult for us towards the end of our tenure. In fact, we had to cut it short. Um, and I talked to the Arts Council and so on about, isn't this the sort of thing you want for London in cultural terms? 
you know, maybe now, well, not now because of the economic situation, but if, if there had been a mayor around then or whatever, maybe we'd have been able to do something. And if there had been, say, another million pounds, um, we, I might have stayed and tried to do something with that space. Jonathan really needed a break and wanted to go away, but I'd have made sure he came back. And uh, so I sort of, that's one opportunity we couldn't take advantage mm -hmm. of. So I, I, I just think how wonderful that would be now, now that King's Cross is what it is. And it's so handy for Europe. And we would have been really sort of trans-European then. And we'd have had lots of exchanges with French theatres. You know, get off the train, get a meal, see a show. You can get back in the same afternoon, all of that sort of thing. So I, I, I regret that that possibility wasn't fulfilled. But apart from that, no. We should not talk about Emperor and Galilee. Oh, yeah. It is the last performance today. Yeah, it is. Has it been, uh, for you as much as for the audience, a kind of voyage of discovery that this relatively obscure play has been given such a cracking production. Very obscure indeed, mm. really. And, and, and no one's really wanted to touch it before, and you can see why. Uh, I mean, he wrote it not to be performed. He wrote it to be read. Closet drama, he called it. In other words, you read it in the privacy of your closet, your room. Um, and, it, and it reads like a, a, an extended historical novel. It's not inherently dramatic. Um, we'd been fascinated by it at the Armada and talked vaguely about trying to do it, you know, and, uh, along the lines of there's no such thing as the impossible. Um, maybe a line from the play, do I say that? Or something like that. Um, yeah, I have a line in the play which, uh, which I absolutely love, but I say to Andrew, to, to, the, to the emperor, to be, uh, if it were possible, it wouldn't need the will. And will was a, is, a, is a very important thing, I think, in making things happen and encouraging other people to help you make things happen. Um, but we didn't get that off the ground. We didn't have to think about it. But it was always in our heads. And um, Nick was talking to Jonathan Kent about what production he might do after John had done Oedipus with Ray Fiennes in the Olivier. And, uh, and John came in, I think, with a list of about three in his head and noticed on Nick's desk a copy of Emperor and Galilean. And he said, well, that's one of the plays I'm quite interested in. And Nick said, then we should do it. <laughs> that's, you know, yeah, maybe we infected him. No, he's always like this, when he came to the Almeida. Um, and so he said, well, we can either do it in a theatre like the Cottesloe, or we could, no, let's do it in the Olivier. So that's how that happened. Um, and then he suggested that Ben Power, which is a very good idea, should should be the principal adapter on it, like the adapter on it, and uh, and try and carve a play out of this long historical saga, and that's what he did. And I think Ben wrote about twelve drafts or something, and there were workshops with Andrew, uh, James McArdle, um, J.B. Ballard, and uh, and John, well, the the the, the guys um, at the centre of the play, the the, the four friends. Um, and then, just before Christmas, John asked me if I wanted to play Maximus. I think I'd have murdered him if he hadn't asked me. Um, and we, we, we got going, and then we had seven weeks rehearsal. Uh, John had also said, uh, this is a travel show, so I know the budget is circumscribed, because in order that the National can afford to, to do seats at the amazing prices that they do, uh, budgets have to be kept tight. Uh, and this play, obviously, you know, with the full um, stretch of, of epic, all of those countries that it goes through, needed, needed some money to take us there. But they worked out a way of doing it half ancient, half modern, and utilizing the amazing drum, which we are on the ground level of now. Uh, and I think Jonathan and Paul Brown, the designer, have made it as versatile as it ever can be. Although, watch out for the next national production, they'll probably think of something else to do, do with it. So that, because that, that is a gift of that stage. And it was Nick who decided that some money should be spent on it in order to get it in working order. And I can tell you, it is in superb working order. Um, it's never gone wrong. There was one mistake, and that was operator error early in the previews. It's just, it does everything you want it to do. Not least because it's operated by, they're not listening, so I won't embarrass them on the brilliant staff who care and get it right and who are as, as interested in the seconds that are so valuable in play as the actors. That's what makes for a really successful theatre. Believe me, I know about that. Um, so um, it's been a very exciting experience. And the thing was to try and 
get the audience free from the notion that it was going to be four hours of duty. It's, I hope it's, it won't be unadulterated, of course, but I hope it's three and a quarter hours of, of, of interest. And because it, it spans, you know, wide and, uh, and, and, and far, um, it was decided that we should try and not just, not just compress it for the sake of the compressive, but be true to the spirit and scope of the play while making it manageable. I mean, we could have done it over two nights. I don't think it would have sustained itself as a play. Some people don't think it does sustain itself as a play, and that's an argument. And Jonathan, the other night, when he was talking to us all, said, it's not quite a play, it's a construct. We've made it this thing. We haven't found a play that was always there. In a sense, we, Ben particularly, has made this play by following the journey of those four guys. That's what Ben's brought to the play, along with so many other things. But he's made that story. Of, of the evening, and um, and it's great to do. And fortunately, um, we've got Andrew Scott playing um, playing the leading role, and um, that is probably and God knows if anyone will ever do it again. Probably not. It's the most demanding play for a young actor. He's never off. Shakespeare, you know, he was an actor. He gave actors a break. You get a break in King Lear. You get a break in Hamlet. Not this. Um, and Ben was mindful of that, but also thought that this is part of the evening. It's this one man's journey, historically accurate for the most part. So he should go on it, and Andrew does. And when he's not on stage, as you will imagine, he's having clothes ripped off him and other ones at it. C occasionally has time for a gulp of water, but no more than a gulp. And uh, it's a sort of, even at the interval, he's washing the blood off, so he doesn't get much time to himself. But it's a fantastic part, a wonderful opportunity. And he seizes it. So that's and it's and also he's very exciting to be on stage with, and everybody, all forty-eight of us, um, like it, like doing it, and feel that we're doing something original. It's wonderful to feel you're doing something that's original that was written so many years ago by one of the greatest playwrights who ever lived. I think if you're interested in Ibsen or the theatre in general, ladies and gentlemen, and you're not doing anything tonight, yeah, I think you, you go it. buy a ticket and they see for yourself. Because it won't be turning up at your local rep in a hurry, I don't imagine. No. Now, Ian has very kindly agreed to sign your autographs out in the foyer with the proviso that nobody produces any memorabilia relating to a well-known film franchise. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry it's Ian just such a racket. I know you're not racketeers. So I'm people. sure if you've got your program or sheets or even a photograph or two, you'll be happy to sign that. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a lovely session with one of my favorite actors. Let's join me, please join me in thanking Mr. Ian McCowan. <laughs>